In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the Presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America. Betches Media presents. Donald Trump was a, a stain on our country. I am someone's daughter, too. Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches Sup Podcast. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. <laughs> and I'm Millie Tavares. <laughs> and this is the Betches Up Podcast, where we're still adjusting to our new intro, but it's where Twitter <laughs> meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. You just heard Shirley Chisholm announcing her candidacy for president in 1972, the 1972 election. Shirley Chisholm was the first Black woman to be elected to Congress in 1968. If you didn't listen yesterday and you're like, what the, he- what the hell is going on for the month of February and two days into March, we will be playing a clip from Black History, an iconic clip, modern Black history, just something that is worth hearing. There's obviously way more than we could ever feature, but we wanted to make sure that a portion of every show was being dedicated to looking back for Black History Month. I love the two days in March. We got it. Yes. We should have started it two days earlier, but when I realized we hadn't, I was like, we got to go two days in March because February is famously 28 days. On, but honestly, January, so much happened. It's not you. <laughs> I actually can't believe January is over. It was, it it's, felt like 8,000 years and also we like made 80 it. things happened. How are our resolutions going? No. <laughs> 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 Uh, I will say that I eat less gluten and less dairy, <laughs> which is not none. Yeah, that's me too. Less. But my appetite is suppressed by the constant rage and anxiety that has surpassed even the former president. I'll take it. I didn't even have resolutions this year. Like I have goals, like things I want to do this year, like financially and like, 
you know, I want to live alone and all this stuff that I'm working towards, but resolutions usually are a little bit more, yeah. I don't know. I'm just like, I need to get through this fucking thing. Like, <laughs> we just need to make it through and I'll be happy. I know. It's like, how are we supposed to do like yearly goals and resolutions? I can only manifest so much. Like I have to live my actual life as it exists today. I got, I have to do things. <laughs> Truly, millennial women, and they say that millennial women don't have any problems. That we, you know, our moms had it way harder. And first of all, mom, have you ever even tried to manifest? <laughs> My mom has actually. I mean, today I, we're today we're going to talk about a millennial woman who has a pretty big problem, um, which is I, that I don't even know which one you're talking about. <laughs> today we're going to focus on AOC. Um, Yes. Obviously, last night, the nation was mesmerized. I was so excited to catch a live live. So we're going to discuss Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chilling account of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. On a related note, we'll also be discussing how women, namely Susan Collins, Liz Cheney, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, have come to symbolize diverging paths of the Republican Party. And we should also cover that the sub podcast has welcomed a new permanent woman host, which is Millie Tamares. Yay! Permanent woman. Permanent. Yeah. A lifetime yeah, permanent. appointment. <laughs> she uh, signed a lifetime. You know that you know the contract said permanent, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a lifetime appointment of titties. Um <laughs> yeah, it's a permanent woman. I'm Perfect. happy to be officially on the team. We're thrilled. Um, we great. have such a great group of six. We could not be luckier. I'm so excited. Obviously, so the happy. listeners told us within your first appearance that they would like you to stay and we all know too. So we're so excited to have you Thank you, you sub fans. And everyone's been so nice. And everyone who damned me about being in crippled, crippling student <laughs> debt, they're like, thank you so much. I now know I'm not the only broke bitch out there. I and I'm know. like, no, you're not. <laughs> it's so heartbreaking that people are just walking around thinking that and carrying that shame when what they're doing is not shameful at all. Well, you know, if people don't have shame, then they'll have anger, you know, then they'll know that like, it's all messed up and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we talked exactly. about this. But yeah. anyway, happy to represent for all the broke. <laughs> We're doing there are a lot. Hey, that's a huge contingency. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like a defining feature of podcast listeners. No, that's not true. Our podcast no. listeners have lots of money to buy things from brands that should come advertise with us. Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> So in an incredibly generous 90-minute Instagram Live last night, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recounted how she escaped the insurrection at the Capitol. For the first time, the 31-year-old Congresswoman also shared that she is a survivor of sexual assault. We will not be referencing sexual assault or depictions in this episode, but we will probably reference her reference again. If that's upsetting to you, just keep that in mind. She also told the audience about I'm sure a million people tuned in over time, but by the morning it had 3 million views. She told the audience that she wanted to share details of that day after Republicans in Congress have tried to gaslight their colleagues and the public into moving on from the deadly siege. She notes that these are the same tactics used by abusers to disempower survivors. And she said that as somebody who clearly experienced that and been subject to that. AOC later says that every member, this is something that struck me a lot. She said that every member has a story somewhat like hers of that day, and they need to start sharing them. She didn't urge them or, you know, make them feel like they had to, but representatives and members sharing these stories can maybe counter some of the Republican attempts to move on from this in the sake of unity and act like it had never happened. 
I got to tell you, I woke up today feeling as mad about the insurrection as I have ever felt. So I think it worked. Yeah, it did really help bring back like how horrible that event was and how close we all were to seeing something even more unspeakably horrible Mm -hmm. unfold. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she really brought home. I mean, obviously, I'm a person who goes into an AOC live stream as a supporter. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) it really brought home for me how sinister it actually is for these Republicans to be trying to like sweep this under the rug and how truly like really crazy that actually is because something, one of the most intense things in American history happened. Uh Like this is not, this is a American history defining event. The date will be like, kids are going to have to memorize the date that this happened. Like this is, it's not a joke. So. And we all watched it. Like, yes. And we, we all watched all it as it. it was happening. I think about this a lot, Elise, like you said, Elise, like we totally could have seen a member of Congress be murdered on TV. We wouldn't yeah. have been able to avert our eyes if you were watching live. Like we absolutely could have seen that. It's a miracle. We did not. Yeah. I mean, people were get, I mean, there was footage of people being beaten to death and stuff. Like, I mean, we again, did, yeah. We did see people die. They just weren't elected officials. But it, you know, if the point of her live stream was to bring this back into the minds of Americans and to uh, try to underscore how nefarious it is for her Republican colleagues, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, all these people to try to move on, then I do think that she did a good job of that. Yeah. I, I had a few things like that I was thinking of, you know, I am a woman of multitudes. I do. I can think multiple things at once. No, I was thinking, of <laughs> course, like, first of all, like, it's so messed up. And, and we're just hearing these accounts. But the more that you personalize it, the more and like, also, like, she had clear messages that she wanted to send of like, you know, it wasn't that, um, <clears throat> It wasn't this one protest that got out of control. It was days leading up to it and people knew about it and the the interactions that she had in the grocery store and all that stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like that was really great. Um, And then, you know, it had me thinking like, as we go into the impeachment hearings in the, in the next week or so, like, and like having her do this live, having Katie Porter, like immediately after on MSNBC, I'm like, which I hope, which, you know, I just feel like the media is very much like both sides, both sides, both sides. And I like this, like this effort to try to steer the, which AOC has been great at and Republicans are great at. And mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. with, with Katie Porter, like stepping in and, and other people, Mondaire and like other people um, stepping in. I'm excited at the thought of having Democrats steer the narrative a little bit and be like, no, we're actually not done talking about this or no, like this is actually a big issue and we're not going to move on. And we're going to like not manipulate the public, but we're going to bring these things up right Mm -hmm. when we're talking, right as we're about to go into these impeachment hearings so that they're not allowed to be like, oh, we'll move on in unity and this and that, you know, which I thought was like amazing and super smart. 
Um, yeah, as she was and, talking, like Mondaire Jones and Jamal Bowen were like, yeah, that happened. That happened yeah, too. That happened. Exactly. I felt that happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But even they were on TV after they showed up on, mm-hmm. they made media appearances, which I think is, is great wow. too. And I think that, you know, the Democrats yeah. need to do a better job, which they are. And I'm starting to see that of like, yeah, let's all corroborate, like we'll work together for this narrative, which Republicans don't. Which Republicans got mastered, you know, and, and then they, they, they do bullshit and, you know, which like Democrats can, you know, we need to come together and start like saying the truth. And another thing I was thinking about when AOC was talking about, when AOC was talking about the grocery store stuff and the tension and people confronting her, you know, I felt incredible compassion. And then it, it did like, you know, and then I'm just going to be like completely honest and transparent of like, you know, it really just got me thinking like about humanity and people and like, I I hate Mitch McConnell and I think he's <laughs> terrible and I don't think he should be, and I, you know, like, yeah, fuck him. He should never like groceries shop in peace and, mm-hmm. and people are mm-hmm. outside of his house and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then like, is that, you know, mm-hmm. is that feeding into this? Like when I see these Republicans go into restaurants or I thought about how Sarah Sanders, they didn't even let her in a restaurant. Um, you know, it just got me thinking yeah. like, yeah, like, like, I think it's okay when that happens, but like, this is wrong, but I think I'm justified in it. I feel like approaching these people in public is justified but then I also feel bad for AOC and I feel like I'm right and these Republican people feel like they're right so like it -hmm. just got me like in this convoluted thinking where I don't think that there's like a a straight answer or there's like a right or wrong but it did just did get me thinking of like because I do think Mitch you can't compare Mitch McConnell and AOC like Mitch McConnell's had way more power and actually has done destructive yeah. things that hurt people well and people all this try stuff. to compare Marjorie Taylor Greene to AOC and they're like see it's two different sides of extremism and I'm like AOC wants universal health care Marjorie Taylor Greene again thinks that like Jewish lasers start fires in California <laughs> or whatever is going on with her. So it's, I mean, there it's no comparison, but Republicans are always trying to make this false equivalency between mm-hmm. things. I even saw like, <laughs> there was, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Rochester this week because a nine-year-old girl got pepper sprayed, which is like another horrible thing. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. And I saw a conservative guy retweet a I think it was like Ben Shapiro or something some conservative guy retweet like a video of some BLM protesters shaking a fence and they were like wow look at that like they it was like they were like wow Biden should call in the National Guard or else he's complicit in this da 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 and I'm like oh my god you are comparing shaking a fence to breaking into the U.S. Capitol stealing the speaker of the (laughs) House's uh-huh. laptop smearing shit, shit. on walls. Beating a police officer to death. Beating no BLM protesters death. beat the shit out of a police officer. No. protester. If that ever happened, there would never be a racial justice protest again. Again. Mm-mm. Yeah. That it would, would be change shut down forever. It oh my god. I can't even BLM think about what would happen. Beat a police officer to death? No. no the the and- country would be still in oh my god. Literally, like the word, like it was become, that would never the happen. movement would become so toxic that the ra- like 
if that happened at a Black Lives Matter protest, the movement would become so toxic that like, and like politically toxic that like everyone would have to regroup and call it something else and people would freak out to such yeah. an insane degree. Yeah, Republicans are just like, we're still Republicans. That's fine. Yeah. That fits. They don't even like, they're not even fucking denouncing the violence. Like, no. and even just like, People want to step back from people like lighting a fucking target on fire, like a, a, a racist target, by mind you. But anyway, um, we don't have to go back to June. But uh, <laughs> no, we we can because most people don't know the backstory of that target, which is like it wasn't any old target. No, the, the, so that target. I mean, if we want to get into that target, basically, right? Um, franchises in order to go into different neighborhoods that you have to have a minimum median income. That's why you don't see Starbucks in the hood or whatever, right? You only see it in like (coughs) affluent areas. Um, But Dunkin' Donuts is everywhere because- That's why people are like, they think gentrification is like, oh, LOL, we got a Starbucks. Like, no, you literally got a Starbucks because Because the median income went up. Exactly. So what they were testing out is, let's see, let's have this let's have this partnership with um, Minneapolis PD and put this target in an, in, um, in this poor area and have it overly like over security, um, facial recognition shit, like some crazy, crazy high, like Mm -hmm. high end security. That's like, to protect Almost. like Mossimo leggings. (laughs) Who's a fucking criminal? Yeah. Like, Yes, yes, that guy's in jail. <laughs> Abolish everything. Jail has touched everything in this country. Abolish the prisons. I'm kidding. That's well, crazy. I, mean, I actually did not know that that Target had like there was actually like a history with the community. And Target that. corporate headquarters is based in Minneapolis, and you know I think they're I don't know if they do the best at you know including and serving the community. That they're so in. it wasn't just like an. I mean, no. people weren't just like, oh, I want to steal shit. Yeah, let's go to the closest. I mean, target. you shouldn't it's burn like, down yeah. the target. Yes, just, just right. saying you shouldn't burn down the target. But it is interesting that the that there's a whole backstory to it that just never really gets told. There, yeah, yeah, there's a backstory to it. There's a bunch you can look up. They, it's like a target because they're overly like, uh, overly surveilled like a lot of people get like beat for shoplift you know it's just yeah like, i mean it's like it's not perfectly like this but it's like the insurrectionists attacked the, the capital they were like we're mad we're gonna find the first government building that we can find no they had an idea to attack the capital i think about what you were thinking about a lot millie which is democrats the party as a whole has the moral high ground and that is like a blessing and a curse because uh-huh. when we do have an opportunity to sort of be a little bit hardcore and promote these ideas of like, you know, never let Sarah Huckabee Sanders into a restaurant, like mm-hmm. ha- hound her out, hackle them. We are inviting like the same kind of discomfort and invasion, not the same, but they will say it's the same yeah. and their supporters will believe them. They mm-hmm. will say that we're welcoming and inviting the same invasion and harassment that we say AOC shouldn't get. And they're like, their their supporters will believe that that equivalence is correct. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly having to do a calculation with how can we sort of run parallel to them and play their game without them being able to use it against us. I think about this every day and I don't know the answer. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think one thing is like, I guess if a Republican wanted to ask AOC to leave their restaurant because they don't like, Right. Healthcare or the Green New Deal or whatever. I think that's dumb, obviously, but 
I guess I would say, yeah, fair is fair. Like if we can have, if Sarah Huckabee Sanders can be asked to leave the red roof in at great emotional distress <laughs> to herself and her party, yeah. then yeah, I guess AOC can be asked to leave a restaurant. Now, I would also say I don't think it's okay for someone to threaten to kill Sarah no. Huckabee Sanders no. or to like actually no. try to harm Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh-huh. which is like what AOC is dealing with some legit death threats. I mean, I'm sure that Sarah we Huckabee don't Sanders- embrace the and I mean, if you want to call it like Antifa, we don't Democrats as a party don't embrace the people that call for violence against people on the right. They do. Republicans are fine with it. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene. They like their posts. They elect them and put them on the education committee. Well, that's even what I'm saying, too, of like, even to the Democrats' detriment, we don't embrace even far, like, leftist people who don't condone violence to the detriment, to the, because they're so scared of being associated with anti- whatever is like... Um, you know, we don't even embrace, yeah, like the more like the, the DSA, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not the same of like Republicans amplifying QAnon things. Do you, it's not do, the, yeah. did you ever see fucking Nancy Pelosi on MSNBC <laughs> elevating DSA points? No. Like not that. Never seen any of them. They probably have a code like do not retweet anyone with a rose in their handle. You can't yeah. do that. Exactly. But Marjorie Taylor Greene is like, oh, you like to post saying to shoot Nancy in the head. Please don't do that again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I love that. Like what AO, AOC was saying was like, I, I gave space for three weeks to see if they would do the right thing. And like, I love this ramp up of like, <laughs> she called Kevin McCarthy a coward, which is true. She's like, mm-hmm. what is she going to, he's going to pull her aside and do what? Like, He's not going to do anything. You know what I mean? No, he's already kissing Trump's ass. He already made a visit to go see Donald Trump and be like, hey, I'm so, oh my God. Donald, so I am awkward. so sorry that things got a little heated back there, yeah. but I just want to make sure that you're good and we're good. He doesn't even and... have, Kevin McCarthy doesn't even have the upper hand of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I feel like we've been hearing about this stupid meeting every day and it's no. like, what's Kevin going to say to Marjorie? How's he going to, how's he going to get to her? They have and no today, control. And today or something I saw like, like Mitch McConnell was like, Oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's toxic, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, don't fucking separate yourself from you, bit. Like, this is yeah. the Republican Party now. This is the choice y'all made. Don't try to separate it now. Like, yeah, right? even evil-ass Ron, like Paul Ryan, that's not who the Republicans are anymore. This is who this is who y'all are, and this is what y'all have been doing for a while. And now that you're getting heat, like, don't try to step away. Right, if you didn't, he called her a cancer. And it's like, if you didn't want cancer, then you shouldn't have smoked a pack a day. Yeah, okay. exactly. Hundred percent. Like you exactly. gave yourself the cancer. There's, there's yeah. some cancers are not preventable, but this one, sir, every yeah. single day you had a chance to not get it. I love that you talked about Millie as you were talking about this coordinated media effort after the live, which I feel like I was exhausted after the live, so I didn't watch any of it until this morning. But it really made me think and get excited about those headlines that she might be considering a primary challenge, and it's just ridiculous to Chuck Schumer. It's just. It wouldn't even take that. Like, why don't you just give her more power now? Because clearly mm-hmm. when she, she gets across a fucking message, mm-hmm. this is a once in a lifetime politician, mm-hmm. does not miss a beat, and then has people that are ready to be behind her.
Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. So let's talk about Katie Porter. So she described AOC, it described several moments when she like fully believed her life was going to end. She gives what we've been talking about the lead up to the six, where there was a lot of tension, there was a lot of indication, and she just was asking herself a lot of questions about like why preparations didn't seem to be made. Um, because on Wednesday, you know, as we were asking the questions, like, how did this happen right after it happened? The main answer we were hearing is we didn't know this was gonna happen. This is crazy. I'm, I'm Nobody could have predicted this. And so she sort of goes through without ever saying, she doesn't even have to counter those claims. She just gives a account of what happened, which systematically undoes all of those claims. She said at one point she heard somebody pounding in her office yelling, where is she? Where is she? So she runs and hides. She says this person didn't identify themselves or what they were there for. And she says, it's very hard to watch. Uh, She describes it as thinking her life's going to end. She has no idea. This person ended up being a Capitol Police officer who she described as angrily trying to get her out. I don't want our listeners to read too much into that. She just repeated this a lot. Um, Who knows what was going on? Clearly, this officer, like, I don't know why he was a Capitol Police officer. You're at risk. We need to go now. He didn't give her any information. So she felt seriously at danger. I mean, I thought cops, isn't their whole thing announcing that they're the cops? I mean, they're supposed well, to. Well, no, Breonna yeah. Taylor, but yeah. that's what happened with Breonna Taylor, one. And two, like, 
people forget that these are basically security guards. They're not really cops. They're security guards. And like, you know, again, I under, like, I totally have compassion for what she was saying of like how scared she was, how like seeing a cop is not 100% like, right. uh, like a, like a weight lifted off your shoulders, especially like as shit is coming out that like, there are a lot of people inside, you know, who are like racist or whatever. And then, you know, but I, but again, what I'm also thinking of, like in the bigger picture, humanity is like this guy's, um, this guy's a security officer. They were severely fucking understaffed. Um, they probably like he's probably freaking out. Yeah, and like it's AOC. Yes. Like if anyone's gonna die, it was her. Right. So I, I'm like, sure he was saying like, "Where is she?" Angrily because he was like, "Fuck, there's scary. people in yeah. here." Crazy to be like, like in the group of five Capitol Police officers who are like trying to figure out what to do. They're like, "Okay, so you go get AOC." Oh god. And just be like. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, like. Yeah, no. Definitely. Know. No. I'll. Yeah. I'll go get. So I'll just go grab her. Um. And he's probably scared. He's probably just like, you need to leave because they know where her. Like, so I'm not trying to make excuses. And she didn't. She didn't like outright condemn him and stuff. But like, that was something where I'm like. Oh, I, I could probably see that he probably was giving her negative bad energy and stuff, but also like yes. And when you're in that situation, especially if you've been through a really traumatic situation, like. You're just, you're just, she just describes her sort of subconscious um, process, like, yeah, just scanning, scanning, scanning and listening, get like the information that he was giving her. And it was telling her that it was not good. He eventually, uh, I think she used, I think she said he, he eventually gave them vague instructions and she ended up in a building uh, with Katie Porter's office. Representative Porter elaborated on the account more on MSNBC last night. Let's listen to the, some of that. She said, you know, could we could we come in? And I said, of course. Um, and she began to, uh, you know, her staffer was trying to describe what had happened. And Alex is, is really usually like unfailingly polite um, and very personable. And she wasn't even really talking to me. She was opening up doors. And, and I was like, can I help you? Like, what are you looking for? And she said, I'm looking for where I'm going to hide. And the thing that will always stay with me, the two memories that really, you know, especially as a mom, I think were just really powerful for me was when she said, you know, I, I was saying, well, don't worry. I'm a mom. I'm calm. I've got everything here we need. We could live for like a month in this office. And she said, I just hope I get to be a mom. I hope I don't die today. And the, the second thing is she was wearing um, heels. And I remember her saying to me, I was wearing flats. And I remember her saying to me, I knew I shouldn't have worn heels. It's really like, it hurts your heart to hear it. You know that she gets a lot of threats. And like, we all know this intellectually, but she doesn't talk about like no. how that looks. And you think <clears> that <throat> she's just cool as a cucumber. So when you hear somebody else describe her being that fearful and her having what is, it's a dramatic reaction, but it's appropriate. I'm not saying it's overdramatic. It's dramatic because the situation is dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, you just imagine how exhausting it must be to have to do that scanning all the time. And she went in there and said, I need somebody to hide. I also imagine, like, imagine working for Katie Porter and you get back to work. And you're like, where are, my, where are my sneakers? Yeah. Oh, AOC had to use them to run from the insurrectionists. Yeah. I, yeah, I, it was so interesting too to like, you know, Katie Porter, 
it's interesting because there's all these politicians that we see like in the but it's like yeah no they all work together and they're all co-workers and they all have different relationships with each other and like katie porter is not necessarily aoc's best friend but like in that moment like she came and protected and then i also i went on katie porter's twitter or something and just to like look i don't know and um there was this <laughs> there was this uh like picture of her sons i don't know if you saw like they had a wrestling match and they put a big hole in the wall and she's like accountability starts at home and then she's showing them like like they had to plaster over it and fix the hole in the wall and stuff it because they had a wrestling match oh my god and i was just like there's a reason she is a mom she's so calm and she's just like doing all this shit and like yeah i will say if i had to if I had to end up at one person's office who would make me feel better, I think Katie Porter is like number one. Like I'm glad that AOC got to her office cause she does have that like mama bear energy in a real way mm-hmm. that like does make, it does. I imagine it provided some level of comfort even though obviously AOC was still going through a lot. And I feel like another thing that, I don't know, another thing this whole situation made me think of is like, I don't want to like lionize a politician or stand like stand politicians too much or whatever. If AFC does something that I don't like, I will hold her accountable for that. She mm-hmm. hasn't really done that yet, but it's, like, it's crazy. She has not like, missed a beat. Not to you, but to other people. Exactly. Like it, but what I mean is just like, my yeah. hope is that I can like look at her as a politician with a level head, but yeah, I do like, I do feel like, part of me wants to lionize her in that she has put herself up, basically like put herself up to be traumatized. And like, Mm -hmm. yes, she is a U.S. representative and that's part of being a public figure and whatnot. But like what she's dealing with for the sake of like fighting for Medicare for all or fighting for climate policy or whatever, like the average person could not handle what comes her way. It's real trauma that she's going through. And it just is so fucked up to me because it's just like, what is she doing that is so bad and makes these people so angry? And it's just honestly like just part of stuff that I deal with of like, I mean, on a way smaller scale, but just like she's first of all, she's existing as a woman and a woman of color. And that's already making people angry. And then she has the audacity to say, I don't like how things are. I want to change it. That's like all she's really doing. And it just angers people so much. And then I think about these people who um, say, yeah, like make America great again, or this is going too far. Things are changing too much. It's like, yeah, because it is radical for them to see a Puerto Rican, a Puerto Rican woman, um, you know, have like talk and like be vocal and have more power and influence than them. And that's like disturbing to them and like unfair and things are too radical. And even like the, even like the, um, she was describing the vote in Congress the night before of like, they were using gender neutral pronouns in the rules and stuff. And like the Republicans stretched that out. And it's just like, yeah, like it's this grasp of like, they don't want any change at all. So like seeing somebody like AOC, who's like trying to push these things that are change, you know, that will Mm -hmm. change power dynamics and stuff is 
And I mean, that's still just not an excuse for how she's being treated. I don't know. Yeah, they're so triggered by her. One of the moments that stuck with me so much from the live is when she knows the influence she has. And so she said that she thought to herself, if I die today, I know that something positive will happen from it. Like, And then you think about that. If you imagine AOC had died that day, I think... It would, she will already probably be an icon forever, but it would probably, it would change everything. It would probably be a scary time at first, but she's aware of the influence and the impact she had. And that was just chilling to me that she thought it'll be okay because this will mean that people get how serious this was. And I, you guys, my audience and my supporters will know what to do. That, that gutted me. It really, um, you know, one thing that I do think about is as tough as it is to see her like get some of the intense criticism that she gets and like feel and really feel for her. I think, you know, to be a change maker on her level, like they always get backlash like this. I just watched the, um, this documentary on Amazon that like just came out. That's like about MLK and the FBI, like these people who try to push for change and for radical change and for radical differences. I mean, we had a quote from Shirley Chisholm at the top of the pod, like, these people dealt with a lot of bullshit in their lifetime. Obviously, <laughs> Martin Luther King was lost as a result. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's par for the course for someone who's doing what she's trying to do. But I don't think that we should like, uh, like, like numb ourselves to the trauma that this actual real person is feeling. Cause like, yeah, she's a Mm -hmm. politician. Yeah. She's a symbol of a movement. Yeah. She's a change maker and an activist and all of these things, but she's also like a real girl who could be one of our friends. And like, I say Mm -hmm. girl in the way of like, Mm -hmm. she's 31. She's the same age as like, she could be one of our buddies and she is like subject to terror all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, we all know people who have had, a scary experience in their life if it's not us. And like, I know people, I don't do this, but I, I know people that when we go um, to a hotel or a vacation house, like they really want to be aware of the window and door situation. And I don't know, just seeing AOC do that same thing. And she was right about it, but yeah. really I was like, oh my God, she's that girl that has to do that all the time. That's her life. That's, that's depleting her every single day. I'm sure it was more intense in that scenario. But uh, yeah, it made me feel like cl- closer to her in a sense because yeah. she is 31. She is our age, but it's so hard to like pr- to really actually take that in with how incredible she is. But yeah, it definitely showed <clears throat> a side of her that it just made me, I will, I'm so furious at oh. the emotional labor demanded of women in Congress because some Republican senators want to pretend this didn't happen, that we have AOC who needed to do not- this for 90 minutes. Yeah tell this the one of the worst things that's ever happened to her, which she only probably was able to because the woman like clearly knows about trauma. She, she lost her dad really young. She had this experience she shared last night. Like we're also just lucky she has the tools to get herself through this to be able to serve us this way. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I remember this point being made a lot during like the height of the Me Too movement, but it really does feel like women are expected to bleed themselves out and mm-hmm. show all of their trauma to the world and explain it at nauseum as eloquently as possible all the time in hopes of getting people to validate it in some way or to see it as an issue. And it still wasn't, you know, there are still people on Twitter who were like, look at this political manipulation and look at this yeah. and look at that. And like, 
still like whatever. And to a point, like to a point, like I, I gave that props. I'm like, yeah, I mean, obviously I don't think that she lied about anything or this and that, but um, I do feel like at one end, yeah, I feel like there was some strategy behind this. Yeah, there was a political purpose to telling Mm. her story and that's okay. And that's okay. And you know what? Republicans have been doing that for a long fucking time. If you're going to tell it anyway, then why not have it be beneficial? And yeah, it just also, you know, reminds like in the Me Too movement, it's like, yeah, everybody has gone through something like, you know, like, that's the whole point of Me Too, which is sometimes lost. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just like, it's, it, it really does re-anger me on like, you know, I think everyone was sharing AOC's tweet to Ted Cruz last week when yeah. they were agreeing about Robin Hood and how fucked up it was that Robin Hood um, stopped the GameStop trades uh AOC and Ted you know Ted Cruz agreed and she's like no you're trying to get me killed and everyone's like ooh dunk blah 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 and I think like it's like whatever you know what I mean but yeah after that they still doubled down and were like I wanted to mention that too because that was another thing that after because you know AOC mentioned that at the end of her 90 minute live that was like as shocking as the first time we saw it that she tells this whole story and she's like and then they kept rejecting the results and I had to stay there and she got her second COVID vaccine, which she said she was fine with, but like, obviously get your vaccines, but I've talked to some people who had to really take it easy after getting their second one. And Mm -hmm. she's there thinking she has to run from insurrectionists. And then like, whatever, all of that. And these people still denied the election. And then they want like Trump. I mean, they want Biden to be fucking like making our, the COVID package less to work with them. It's kind of bipartisanship. Fuck you people. You guys need to time out and go figure your shit out and get out of the way and stop making noise and stop being assholes. You lost everything. Move on. They lost everything. We did touch on Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I wanted to end on one sort of question or point that it's really seeming like the conscience of the Democratic Party as a 31-year-old woman unpacking her trauma for 90 minutes at a time. The conscience of the Republican Party is Dick Cheney's daughter. How do, what do we make of that? And where do you think we go from here? I know that's a really broad question, but this week we're sort of waiting for Kevin McCarthy to like talk to Marjorie figure out what's going on there while he's also supposed to talk to other people to stop calling for Liz Cheney to be removed. Do you feel like this moment sort of just distills what's actually been happening for a decade now? Yeah. I mean, I do think, I think it's interesting to see so many women at the forefront of what is happening. Obviously on the right, it's a lot of, white women, but I think that it's interesting because I do feel like our country is going through something that is actually emotional mm-hmm. and for better or for worse, like women are the people who society turns to, as we were just saying, to process our emotions. <laughs> so I think that it makes sense to me that we're finding women as like the mouthpieces for all of these different varied ways of dealing with our emotions, which ultimately Marjorie is where, or she's working through something and she's, she's processing something and that's how she is. uh, And that is why she is how she is what it is. We don't know, but 
something's definitely going on there. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's hard because there's what you feel like Republicans should do, and then there's what you know that they're gonna do. There's yeah. what there's what they're capable yeah. of doing and it just it just sucks because they should you know like they should have cut this shit out a long time ago or they should have condemned this and you know or they, that's what they should do that's what kevin mccarthy should do but we don't know what he's gonna do and um I mean, we kind of do. It's like, oh, don't do that again. And it's like, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. And she's offended a lot. She was fucking harassed. That's the thing. It's like, okay, to, fine. Yeah. Like, let's harass Mitch McConnell. Let's harass AOC. Fine, whatever, right? Like, that's whatever. You're fucking following Parkland kids and saying that the school shooting didn't happen, even though, um, you know, what is that? I heard, like, on Pod Save America that, like, a, a mom of a victim... Um, called Marjorie Taylor and was like, you need to, would you like say that you're lying? And she's like, I can't say it publicly. You know what I mean? She's like, yeah, they know that this is bullshit, but it's just so fucked up. And yeah, something really dramatic has to happen. They have accountability has to happen or this will happen again. And I just, I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to happen. I mean, yeah. it scared me, but I listened to um, on Throughline on NPR. They had an episode about like authoritarianism and they had an expert on fascism speak on the podcast. And this expert was like, when these things are not dealt with and when there is no accountability for them, they do it again and come mm-hmm. back harder. Like it's mm-hmm. not, this isn't good. There's historical precedent major Mm -hmm. major historical precedent multiple instances i'm not just talking about hitler though of course (laughs) we are talking about hitler (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're always talking about hitler but like there are multiple different instances of these types of situations not being punished and then leading to worse violence insurrection full fascism going forward so it's like what AOC is talking about with accountability. There's an emotional component to it. There's a logical and historical component to it. Like this needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get that expert on our podcast too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they scared me. <laughs> they scared you. Okay, great. Sammy can do that one. Sammy would love that. <laughs> Stick around for an interview with Jessica Marac and Caroline Grosshands. They are two attorneys from the Sanctuary for Families, and we're going to discuss which of Betsy DeVos's Title IX rules from the Trump administration are probably here to stay and what you can do to help and get involved and what rules they're looking to roll back and how you can be part of that process. Before we hop into today's interview, I want to let you know that it includes references to sexual assault and harassment. No descriptions, but we will just be referencing policy specifically as it relates to campus sexual assault. Just a heads up in case that's triggering for you. I'm here with Jessica Morak and Caroline Grosshands. Jessica is a former sex crimes prosecutor and a former attorney at Sanctuary for Families on the Campus Advocates Project, who's worked to develop programs aimed at advocating on behalf of survivors of sexual violence, intimate partner violence, and other forms of gender-based violence. Caroline Grosshands is a former criminal defense lawyer and current staff attorney at the Sanctuary for Families, where she works on the Campus Advocates Project to provide legal consultation and representation to student survivors of gender-based violence, including sexual violence, while guiding them through the Title IX process and criminal justice system. Thanks for being with us. How are you? 
Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're so excited you're with us. Today, we want to talk to you about some Trump era changes as they relate to campus sexual assault and how we can find our way out of them. You and I were just chatting before, and we've been chatting on this podcast about how we're so relieved to have the time and space to actually explore some issues now outside of the just 911s every single morning. We can kind of take a look back and chart a path forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been it's been a decade <laughs> four years have been right absolutely completely so speaking of that the trump administration moved a mile a minute and every day there seemed to be a new rollback or oppressive new policy it was really hard to keep up with them especially in 2020 it was especially crazy but at the height of the pandemic and the middle of an election Betsy DeVos's Department of Education issued really consequential new regulations. I, I kept noting that timing because as I was going back over this, it looks like they were announced in May, which was truly the height of the pandemic, and then went into effect in August. And this might be something that people were not able to follow up on or learn too much about, but it is really impacting people. So can you sort of broadly describe what these new regulations were? Um, so... We are in the middle of the pandemic, right? And we are in the middle of the Trump administration. And now we have these new rules, which actually do quite a bit and and, and are very different. Um, But there are some aspects of these new rules um, that survivors of sexual violence and gender violence are feeling um, much more heavily than others. And one of those changes is the fact that now all um, Title IX investigations will require live hearings with cross-examination. So we just want to, we want to focus on this aspect, which is certainly mm-hmm. not the only aspect of the new rule, um, but it's actually a huge change. So I want to just break that down a little bit. Previously, in the pre-new rule time, um, there actually was no mandate to have a live hearing. Each school sort of had its own discretion on how to handle and resolve these cases. Now, some absolutely did have hearings. And I actually have done uh, Title IX hearings as an attorney advisor, um, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic and pre-new rule, um, and now after the new rule has come into effect. But so before the new rule, it wasn't a requirement. So some schools chose to resolve these just based on an investigation. Um, And so there weren't always a opportunity for students to have to sort of interact with each other, right? The responding um, and the reporting party to have this actual interaction. Now, there were also in schools that had hearings, um, there was a mechanism to have questions submitted to the other side, but it wasn't exactly cross-examination in the way that we are now seeing it under the new rule. Um, It was usually questions that were submitted to the hearing panel, and then actually the hearing panel was the ones that actually asked those questions to the students. That's right, Jessica. So, you know, now there really is um, both a hearing that's required and cross-examination that's required. Um, And so that is actually um, quite different. And and that really requires that there be direct questioning um, of each party by the other party's advisor. Um, And that is something that's much more akin to an actual um, court proceeding. Um, and so that, that's really a big change from what we had previously seen. Um, and there are some challenges with this, um, you know, in particular, um, 
a witness now can't be involved in a Title IX hearing if they're not willing to submit to um, cross-examination. And uh, so what that means is that if that person isn't willing to submit to cross-examination, their statements aren't going to be considered at all during the Title IX process. Um, and so that can have a potential real chilling effect um, that we're concerned about. Um, you know, for example, the university also um, doesn't necessarily have the ability to get statements from um, from certain individuals. Um, so for a nurse in particular, um, who the university may have, um, you know, not be able to get a statement from them. Um, and so that's wow. something we're concerned about. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it sounds like the one of the primary reasons people might be more motivated to pursue these th through their university is because they're not being put on trial and cross-examined. And it seems like that huge feature going away sort of removes the whole point of having these special protections for people on campus anyway. Exactly. So, you know, all we hear all the time is this not a legal proceeding. It's not a legal right, proceeding. Right. <laughs> it's not a legal proceeding. But then voila, we have now cross-examination, which is a uniquely legal process right? It's actually not a legal process that is super intuitive. It takes some time to actually right. learn how to do. Even like young attorneys struggle with this. So now you have this uniquely legal principle, which actually isn't that easy to learn, thrust into a non-legal proceeding that doesn't have to require attorneys. And sort of this whole like mix is a bit confusing. And I think sort of what Caroline was talking about is the schools don't actually have, you know, they don't have subpoena power the way the courts do. They can't force anyone to be at the hearing. And so mm -hmm. we have to think about the fact that most of the people who are going to be involved in these hearings are college age students, right? And so it's going to have, it could have, a, you know, this is a voluntary process. It could have a real chilling effect on students being willing to participate in the process, especially if they are either, you know, a witness to some part of um, the incident um, or, you know, outcry or aftermath, you know, it, you know, can provide that evidence. And if they're not willing to submit to cross, then they will, their statements will not be used, which in the, before the rule, they had been. And so we're sort of afraid of Got this it. killing effect. Right. Absolutely. What burdens do these regulations place on survivors that they did not face before when somebody is considering moving forward with this process? What do they now have to undertake and what burdens are there there? Uh, those things that you were talking about are are challenging to understand for even people with a legal background. Yeah, Amanda, um, you know, so one thing is that now survivors um, have to face their abuser in a hearing. Um, and that wasn't something that they necessarily had to do before. Um, and they also have to be subject to um, cross-examination. And like we've said, um, you know, that's cross-examination now by um, the respondent's attorney um, or advisor, but oftentimes it is an attorney, an attorney who's trained in cross-examination. Um, and that looks very different than a hearing panel um, asking questions of a survivor. Um, and so for, for an individual to now have to be subject to cross-examination potentially by 
an attorney who maybe is, um, you know, a criminal defense attorney who's quite trained in cross-examination is a very different type of proceeding than, than what we had seen prior to this. So the university has to provide an advisor, but it doesn't have to be a, a, an attorney. That's, That's correct. Right. And it doesn't have to be at the beginning of the case. That's really That's- an important part to rec- recognize. Yeah. The advisor only has to be provided at the point of cross-examination. So for the hearing, for the purpose of um, conducting cross. But as Caroline and I can tell you, there is a lot more that goes into being an attorney, to being an advisor um, in these cases that is well before the hearing. I mean, there's an entire investigation stage. There's evidence that has to be, you know, categorized, submitted, preserved. Um, You have to prepare for the interviews. That's what builds the record for the hearing. And so schools are not required to provide an advisor until the point of the hearing. And one more thing I just wanted to circle back on, you were asking about the burdens that survivors um, are now um, obligated under the new rules. Besides just being actually subject to cross-examination, they now actually have to also develop cross-questions for the other party and other witnesses, right? And so it's not just preparing to be crossed, it's actually sitting down and developing the questions that you as the reporting party want to ask your abuser and other witnesses that might be involved in the hearing. And as I said, this is a a difficult and unique legal mechanism that can take years to perfect and hone. And now it's actually the burden of college age students to undertake who have may have just experienced one of the most traumatic moments of their lives. And it's why the now the role of the advisor is even more crucial than it ever has been before. Yeah, I mean, as you're as you're saying all this, you just think that you just think about the message this sends to potential perpetrators, knowing that these are the hoops that people are going to have to jump to and steps they're going to have to undertake. And it doesn't seem like the chilling effect is being directed in the right way at all. I wanted to ask you, the Trump administration, as we've mentioned, they do a lot of appalling things and we tend to get caught up in just how shocking they are. But a lot of times, if you look closely, the policies actually don't even make practical sense in terms of the aims they're ostensibly trying to achieve. So I also wanted to ask you, in your view, let's look at what was the stated purpose of this rule change and did it even achieve that? You know, I mean, one of the things that it was trying to achieve was greater due process protections. Yeah. Um, and so that's why they implemented these live hearings and the cross-examination portions. Um, and, you know, certainly those portions do create greater due process um, protections. It is more akin to what we see in a formal court proceeding. Um, but there are ways that we might have achieved those due process protections um, outside of adding in that cross-examination and the live hearings. Um For example, schools prior to this, some schools did, um, like we've mentioned, allow for questions, cross-examination questions to be submitted to a hearing panel and then for that hearing panel to go through and ask um, the different witnesses and the respondent and complainant those questions. Um, And yeah, I think a lot of us have seen that on SVU. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Like that's a process Um, we're more familiar with. Yeah, but I, I was just making the distinction that that is something that um, occurred through a hearing panel prior to this, right. potentially, right, right, and right. having it happen through a hearing panel versus in a live hearing um, and by an attorney advisor is quite different, right? Having an mm-hmm. attorney advisor ask those questions versus the university hearing panel ask those questions is quite different. Totally. 
Um, and so the idea being that, yes, this does add more due process protections, but we're some of we're some universities solving for that already by having those questions be asked through hearing panels. In fact, maybe they were. And so maybe there are ways to achieve those due process protections um, that already were being implemented by certain universities that didn't require these new um you know, these new requirements of a live hearing and of cross-examination by, um, by an individual's advisor. Another thing we think about um, when we think about, you know, fairness, right? Fairness is kind of what um, the, the rule was trying to, to implement, um, you know, greater fairness in these proceedings. And, and let's be real, these proceedings do, um, they're very, they're very sensitive, they're very serious, and they can have real effects, right, um, for, for, for respondents um, and for complainants. Um, and so, you know, what Caroline is talking about is it become a little bit more adversarial, th this process, um, which is certainly not what the intention of the rule is. But when you think about fairness as well, I, I want to just sort of frame for the audience um, and for, for folks thinking about Title IX um, that there, there is a concern that, that we have that now there may be all kinds of new inequities, right? And so let's think about that for a sec. There are going to be some schools that have the financial resources to hire attorney advisors and be able to provide them to students. And there are going to be schools that cannot because they do not have the financial resources to do so. So if you are at a school that does not have the money to hire an attorney advisor and you yourself cannot afford an attorney, but the other party can, is that fair? Right. M remind right. yourself that you're going to be subjected to cross-examination from the other per party's advisor. And if they can afford an attorney, like Caroline said, maybe a seasoned attorney who has had years of perfecting cross and you can't. And perhaps you're being provided an advisor who is an employee of the school who might be an incredibly lovely person and a very supportive person, mm -hmm. but might not be an attorney who has had years of doing cross-examination is that fair? And, and as Caroline said, in those scenarios, oftentimes it is the respondent um, who has hired an attorney more often than not. When you see um, folks who are hiring attorneys for these cases, it is the respondent and not the survivor um, because they are um, the, the students facing you know, the, the sanctions. The other thing is that some schools provide advisors from the outset, the beginning of the case. And some, as we said, do not until you are actually at the hearing stage. And we've discussed how, you know, it is so much more, it is so much more beneficial to have an advisor throughout the process because, which, which isn't surprising to anyone, it's actually a very complicated, very long, very traumatizing process. And to have someone um, who can support you throughout from the beginning is really the trauma-informed model. But that's not going to be that that's not uniform through every school in the nation. Right, right. And Caroline and Jessica, so you mentioned that students do best and if they have a lot of guidance and these can be complicated matters that require a lot of guidance. A lot of the legal work you do is providing that guidance to universities and institutions. What what resources do you provide and have you seen increased demand on those resources even since this rule went into effect? Yeah, Amanda, I mean, unfortunately, we, we definitely have seen increased um, demand. Um, you know, universities, I would say, and colleges 
um, are really scrambling to try and figure out, um, you know, how to respond to this rule. And they're scrambling to do that in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, and so that's a real burden. Um, at the same time, um, we have been encouraged by the fact that everything now is virtual. And so because of that, um, we're now able to reach students that we couldn't otherwise reach and reach students um, in areas where they might not have organizations like Sanctuary for Families. Um, and to your point, um, you know, what we do at Sanctuary for Families as part of the Campus Advocates Project is we specialize in um, supporting students through this Title IX process. Um, and, you know, we take a trauma-informed approach. So we really try and meet students, um, ideally, from before they even go into their first interview with the Title IX um, investigators. And there often can be several interviews with the Title IX investigators. And we support them through all of those interviews and then ultimately um, through the hearing, um, help them now in developing those cross-examination questions, um, help them in potentially dissecting very lengthy reports, collecting evidence. Um, and again, through all of that, um, you know, take a trauma-informed approach. We work in an organization that focuses on gender violence. And so we are all trained in this and able to support them, you know, both legally and hopefully emotionally. We also um, have been doing our part to try and help um, folks who might become advisors who aren't actually um, attorneys or attorneys with this experience. So, you know, I'm a former sex crimes prosecutor. Um, Caroline is a former criminal defense attorney. So, so we know how to, to develop a cross and um, we know how to digest evidence. We know how to break down evidence. We know how to categorize evidence. Um, we know how to digest these very lengthy investigative reports that come out of Title IX cases, but not everybody does. And there will be people, it, it is inevitable that there will be folks serving as advisors in Title IX cases that may be attorneys, but have never dealt with a case like this before or who may not be attorneys. So one thing that um, I did during uh, this pandemic is I uh, hooked up with the Student Conduct Institute through SUNY, which is an amazing organization that creates a ton of content um, and trainings and modules around Title IX and gender-based misconduct. And so, um, as part of the Campus Advocates and Sanctuary for Families, I co-authored with the Student Conduct Institute, a national re advisor resource that is aimed actually at um, folks who are going to be advisors who might not even be attorneys. So it's really a comprehensive overview of, oh, my God, I'm going to be an advisor in this case. What do I do? And so that actually uh, rolled out this month. That's so exciting. I mean, as I'm, I, I absolutely know people are listening right now thinking I want to do that and I want to learn how to do that. Um, but at the same time, I also want to talk about any possibility that they might not have to. Um, we're seeing the Biden administration day to day roll out executive actions, ordering departments to undo some Trump era rules. How do you expect that this rule will be addressed? Do you think that it will return entirely to Obama era guidelines or is there a chance some of the requirements are here to stay? I'm going to be honest. I think that some of these requirements are here to say, um, and, and I don't say that to be, you know, pessimistic in any way. I want to be realistic and honest. Um, you know, I do think maybe a bit around the edges, there may be some changes, um, but I don't think that the requirement of live hearings 
um, or the mechanism of cross-examination is going anywhere. What I do hope or, or would like to see and I maybe feel confident about maybe seeing a change of is there's actually a bunch of other things that happened because of mm-hmm. the rule. So the definitions of, of sexual harassment were actually narrowed. And I'm hoping to see those changed a bit um, and rolled back so that um, for one, we can continue to investigate gender-based misconduct and study abroad programs. You can't do that under the funnel rule anymore. Um, we have now, uh, you know, the definitions have been narrowed so that there is a ton of conduct that will not be covered by Title IX. And this is especially difficult uh, for metropolitan schools and uh, commuter students because it's it has an on-campus requirement within the mm, school program geez. activity. And I can tell you as someone who works in New York City, um, most of or a lot of the gender violence happens in private apartments off campus. So that's somewhere. Mm -hmm. As a co-chair of the New York Cyber Sexual Abuse Task Force, I am really hopeful that cyber sexual abuse will be specifically addressed under under Title IX, which it's it's not technically right now, but the Biden administration has already allocated an entire task force to looking at um, digital violence and really recognizing this as um, the prevalent form of abuse that it is. So those are my hopes. Those are my views. Um, I would love to see a bigger emphasis on actually providing attorney advisors and recognizing that just because you've called something not a legal proceeding, once you've introduced legal principles, you kind of have to address that. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the more you guys are sharing about this, it seems like I've already said this, but they've they've squeezed any benefit of pursuing this process through your university by, you know, if it didn't happen on the actual within the borders of the campus. And now you need to have. So, Caroline, can you tell us more if people are listening and they think I might have the talents and the abilities to become an advisor and help how where can they get involved and learn more right now? Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, uh, like Jessica mentioned, the advisor guide that um, we put together is, um, you know, that she co-authored is a great resource for um, people to access. Um, They also can reach out to us at the Campus Advocates Project. Um, Certainly, um, you know, if you are a survivor yourself um, and looking for resources, you can, you know, fill out our intake form that's online there and reach us that way. Um, but also if you're just interested in, in kind of getting in touch with us and learning more about how to do this work, um, that's another great place. Um, you can reach out to us and, and we'd be happy, obviously, to, to help out anyone we can, both survivors and those trying to help survivors. Yeah. So if people go to school and are at a university and they feel like they're not satisfied with the advisor situation or the guidance, they can get in touch with you? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yes. Our, uh, the Campus Advocates Project services are free to students. Um, so we are part, you know, it's part of Sanctuary for Families and for students. Um, these services are free. They are comprehensive. Um, and it is, you know, led by experts in this field, um, which is, is a pretty niche field. Um, another organization, if, if just folks are interested in learning about Title IX and learning about um, this new law and, you know, I mean, listen, if you if you really are, read the law because that's, that's yes. definitely <laughs> the part. Um, but a, another great organization is Know Your Nine. Um, and Know Your Nine has a lot of great, um, you know, one-pagers and fast facts um, about 
Title IX about the new the new rules and how it has had you know a change and affected, as well as SUNY's SUNY Student Conduct Institute has a wealth of information. Um, but you know, we are experts in this field and we are here to answer questions because the last thing that we want is people to be uninformed. When you are uninformed. Uh, you feel like this entire process is too overwhelming because you don't even know where to start. That has to end. We have to bridge that gap. Information is power. And when you have that power, you can make the choice to either pursue a case or maybe don't. But if you have the information, that choice is yours and it's not based on fear or a lack of information. And that's what the Campus Advocates Project is really about. Yeah, I think that's such an important message that some of these rules can be disappointing, but you still have resources and a path forward for whichever you want to take. Thank you guys so, so much for your time. We will include all of those resources in the show notes and on our Instagram. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Our podcast director is Sean Kilby. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to SupPod at Betches.com. Betches.